Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. It's Karen T. And welcome back to another episode of Cookies and Crime. So two weeks ago, the first episode of Cookies and Crime podcast went up and everything went so well. I was so nervous about it with everything leading up to it. There was just so much work to do and I was traveling a lot, so it was really stressful, but everything turned out so well and I'm so happy about it. If you're watching Cookies and Crime on YouTube, the first episode of the podcast was exclusive to the podcast. So if you haven't heard it yet, you're not gonna see it here, so definitely go check it out. And this is the first episode where I'm recording for both YouTube and the podcast at the same time. Nothing should really be done too differently. There may be some clips that are just for YouTube and maybe some sound bites that are just for the podcast. But other than that, they are pretty similar. Also in the last episode of the podcast, I did a giveaway and there were four winners that are going to receive merch. I haven't reached out to them yet and I haven't announced it, but I'm going to announce it right now. So the giveaway was on Instagram and so I'm going to name out the Instagram handles. And the first winner is Mrs. Jackson323. And she wanted to hear about the Candy Montgomery and Betty Gore case, which I haven't heard of either of those. So definitely we'll look into that. The next winner is VTBell underscore 29. And she requested the case of Richard Angelo. By the way, the rules of the giveaway was you had to comment telling me what case you wanted me to cover. And these are the cases that people wanted me to cover. The third winner is Kaylee.n underscore Scott, who wants to hear more in depth on the Circleville letters, which I did cover in a previous Cookies and Crime on YouTube. And I feel like it was pretty extensive, but I'm sure there's more information on it. There are TV shows and documentaries about it that I haven't watched. So maybe I will do another episode for that, especially on the podcast. And last but not least, our final winner is Sassy072. And she wants to hear the Presk Campbell case. I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's been 20 years and it's still unsolved. And those are our winners. And honestly, it was a small pool too. So if you got in, you had a very high chance of winning, especially since I had four winners. So I will be reaching out to you guys if I haven't already. And you guys will receive your merch soon. So thank you so much for listening to my first episode and also entering my merch giveaway. It means so much to me. And I can't wait for you guys to get it. Also listening to my first episode over again, like I'll I'll be honest, I listened to it probably like three times after it was posted. And every single time, of course, you're gonna analyze yourself a lot more. At this point, I'm used to listening to my own voice. I don't have like a big issue with that, but I think it's funny because when I speak, I feel like I'm being animated. I feel like my voice is going up and down and 
it's not monotone, but then I hear myself back and I'm like, I sound so serious, which the way that I host and tell the case is more serious than it is, you know, like funny. But still, I feel like I sound so serious and so monotone. And that's something that's been bothering me lately because I already have a resting bitch face. I have a resting bitch voice. I want something to come off a little bit more like cheerful or friendly. And I feel like you can do that way more with your voice than with your face. But you know what? Like I, I really have to come to terms with like how I sound. And sometimes I just sound very flat and I sound like a bitch. <sighs> I mean, I'm getting close to 30. I'm still having a little bit of an identity crisis because I do want to appear more friendly. But like, you know, if it looks like a bitch and it sounds like a bitch, like maybe it's just a bitch, you know? Anyway, I'm ranting for no reason. So the new tradition for cookies and crime is not only on YouTube are you going to see me decorate a cookie, but I'm also going to be eating a cookie. And this week's cookie is a cookie I made recently for the 4th of July, which I know is not the 4th of July yet, but as a content creator, you have to make this type of content in advance. So I have a slice and bake cookie with me that has an American flag star in the center and it has a whole bunch of non-parel. I think it's non-parel or non-parel. I'm gonna say non-parel because it's fancier. But it's coated in red, white, and blue non-parels all over the edges. And I think it's such a freaking cute cookie. For those who don't know what slice and bake is, it's basically like a log of cookie dough. You put an image in it and when you slice it, each slice should have that image. So it's like those Pillsbury ready to bake sugar cookies like for halloween they have a pumpkin on it or for christmas they have a christmas tree that's basically what this is and they are birthday flavor which is one of my favorite flavors of all time i love birthday cake i love sprinkles like to me sprinkles is a flavor like i'm a child when it comes to sprinkles i just love the color it like entices me and i love this recipe because it is so soft it just like, it breaks so easily and it's still very moist. So let's take a bite. You can just hear those sprinkles. <laughs> there are so many sprinkles on this and I freaking love it. It gives it such good texture. It's also a very light, not too sweet cookie, which is really nice because you can eat this whole cookie and you don't get that like really nasty sweetness aftertaste in your mouth because it is so light. So the tutorial and recipe for this slice and bake cookie is already on my YouTube and I will put it in the description. You know what? I love this new tradition. I get to eat a freaking cookie. Like why didn't I think of that in the first place? So weird. Okay, so let's get into today's case. So for the second episode of the podcast, I wanted to stick to a case that really got me into true crime and really stood out as a what the hell moment just in humanity. And this is the case of the Jonestown Massacre. Everyone has heard of the Jonestown Massacre. Everyone knows of it. And it's because it's this major event that just baffles your mind. You're just like, how? How? How did this many people get coerced by one man? I mean, not only is it sad, you really have to think about all of the things that had to come together to make this possible. But let's just get into it. It's time for cookies and crime. 
This is the story of the Jonestown Massacre. So the man behind the Jonestown Massacre is Jim Jones, so we're gonna start off with him. James Horn Jones was born on May 13, 1931 in the rural community of Crete, Indiana. His father was a disabled World War I veteran who suffered from severe breathing difficulties due to injuries which he sustained in a chemical weapons attack. His father's illness led to financial difficulties, which resulted in intense marital problems between Jones's parents. In 1934, in the midst of the Great Depression, the Jones family was evicted from their home for failure to make mortgage payments. Their relatives purchased a shack for them to live in at the nearby town of Lynn. Jones was not like the other kids. He regularly visited a casket manufacturer in Lynn and held mock funerals for roadkill that he collected. One neighbor of the Jones family even stated that Jones killed a cat with a knife for one of these funerals. Jones claimed to have unique abilities, such as the ability to fly. He once leaped off a building's roof to demonstrate his abilities to others, but he fell and broke his arm. Any kid who played with dead animals as a child is going to become a serial killer. I mean, it's very A to B in my head. At times, he would put other children into life-threatening situations and tell them he was guided by the angel of death. Although they had sympathy for Jones because of his poor circumstances, his neighbors reported that he was an unusual child who was obsessed with religion and death. Jones regularly used offensive profanity, commonly greeting his friends and neighbors by saying, good morning, you son of a bitch, or hello, you dirty bastard. He was a very charming kid, wasn't he? Already with all this information, I feel like there's just so much to analyze about him. I mean, first of all, a lot of this seems to be of his nature, like he was just born this way. Jones developed an intense interest in religion and social doctrines. He admired leaders like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and Mahatma Gandhi. That is a mixed bag of different leaders because I feel like some of them are extremely awful and then others aren't as bad, like they're more socialist type leaders. So it's kind of hard to see where he's going with all of this. As World War II started, Jones developed an intense interest in the Nazi party. He was fascinated by their cohesion and Hitler's total power. The members of his neighborhood found it concerning. Jones acted as a dictator over the other kids, ordering them to goose step together and beating those who disobeyed. Commenting on his childhood, Jones stated, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile. I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. There was some kind of school performance and everybody's parent was there but mine. I'm standing there alone. Always was alone." Unquote. I feel like a lot of the time when these serial killers or these murderers have an opportunity to talk about their childhood or why they think they're messed up, they really hit it on the nail. Like they know why they're messed up or what really just punched them in the gut that changed the way they became. And more often than not, it always has to be about the way they were raised, how their parents treated them, if their parents showed love or not. That is such a big factor in all of this. 
And I think it's pretty apparent that he resorted to aggressiveness and hostility because he was so envious of other kids and how supportive their parents were or how their parents were actually there for them. And just evolutionary wise, he's trying to level the playing field by saying that like he's ready to kill or he would have killed. Because then at that point, if he were to be able to level out the field, he would have a chance himself. And this is the way my brain works. Like I try to think about like, why does this make sense in a way of survival? Because that's how humans are built. The things that we feel and the things that we do serve some type of purpose for us, maybe not in a social sense, but definitely in a survival sense. Tim Reiterman, a journalist and biographer of Jones, wrote that Jones's attraction to religion was strongly influenced by his desire for a family. In high school, Jones was a good student who enjoyed debating with his teachers. His religious views alienated him from other young people. He frequently confronted them for drinking beer, smoking, and dancing. At times, he would even interrupt other young people's events and insist that they read the Bible with him. One day at a baseball game he attended in Richmond, Indiana, Jones was disturbed by the treatment of the African Americans who attended. The events at that baseball game brought discrimination against African Americans to Jones's attention and influenced his strong aversion to racism. Jones's father belonged to the Indiana branch of the Ku Klux Klan. Jones described how he and his father had a disagreement about race and added that they had not spoken for many, many years as a result of his father forbidding one of Jones's black friends from entering his home. I think you see this a lot in not only serial killers, but everyone, that they can have both good and bad intentions. Like the fact that Jim Jones is seemingly by nature a narcissistic, manipulative person, but he also is against racism and segregation. Like how do you decide that the Nazi party is good, but racism is bad? Like that's a, it's a weird take. Jones's parents separated in 1945, and they eventually divorced. Jones moved to Bloomington, Indiana in November 1948, where he attended Indiana University Bloomington. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be Indiana University of Bloomington or something, but that's the way it's written here. With the intention of becoming a doctor, but changed his mind shortly thereafter. Knowing what the future brings, he should have stuck to being a doctor. Or maybe not, maybe he would have been a very crappy doctor too. Actually, take that back. He would be absolutely a terrible doctor. During his time at university, Jones was impressed by a speech which Eleanor Roosevelt delivered about the plight of African Americans, and he began to espouse support for communism and other radical political views for the first time. Jones met a nurse in training at a hospital he was working at, and the couple married on June 12, 1949. In 1951, the 20-year-old Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Jones and his family faced harassment from government authorities for their affiliation with the Communist Party during 1952. In one event, Jones's mother was harassed by FBI agents in front of her co-workers because she had attended a communist meeting with her son. In early 1952, Jones announced to his wife and her family that he would become a Methodist minister, believing the church was ready to put real socialism into practice. Jones was surprised when a Methodist district superintendent 
helped him to get a start in the church, even though he knew Jones to be a communist. Around this time in 1953, Jones visited a Pentecostal Latter Rain convention, Latter Rain being a movement post-World War II believing that Jesus' second coming was near. This is where a woman prophesied that Jones was a prophet with a great ministry. Listen, I am all for believing whatever religion you want to believe as long as you're not hurting anybody. But how does anyone believe that Jesus is coming back to life? That's just, that's so out there, you know? Like I totally understand wanting to believe in a higher power, but believing that a man who is dead is coming back to life, like materializing back to life is delulu. That's all I have to say. It's, it's Delulu to me. Sorry. Jones was surprised by the endorsement, but gladly accepted the call to preach and rose to the podium to deliver a message to the crowd. Believing that the racially integrated and rapidly growing Latter Rain movement offered him a greater opportunity to become a preacher, Jones successfully convinced his wife to leave the Methodist church and join the Pentecostals. In 1953, Jones began attending and preaching at the Laurel Street Tabernacle in Indianapolis, a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church. Jones held healing revivals there until 1955 and began to travel and speak at other churches in the Latter Rain movement. At these healing revivals, he promised miracles. He would literally take the cancer out of his members, which really turned out to be rotting chicken and a decent magician's hand. So reading this again, it makes sense as to how he was able to get a lot of people to move to South America. Because if you believe in this type of stuff, like if you believe that someone can remove the cancer from you, from like screaming in your face and hovering their hands around, you're gonna believe a lot of crazier things than that, you know? But at the same time, it makes it do I do feel bad for these people because they want to believe in this stuff so much. And that's what I empathize with, like wanting to believe so hard in something that you deem it to be true. It's kind of sad. The Assemblies of God was strongly opposed to the Latter Rain movement. In 1955, they assigned a new pastor to the Laurel Street Tabernacle, who enforced a ban on healing revivals. This led Jones to leave and establish Wings of Healing, a new church that would later be renamed People's Temple. To bring this all together, the People's Temple would become known as a cult, but their beginnings were of a diverse background with many African-American followers, and their beliefs were progressive within the church. But of course, that doesn't last very long when you have a delusional, dictative leader. This was the attraction to the group. I mean, those are the people who are able to create such a successful cult. They are so charismatic that people don't know that they're being brainwashed or manipulated. After Jones received considerable criticism in Indiana for his integrationist views, which is the bringing together of all races, the temple moved to Redwood Valley, California in 1965. His views were seen as revolutionary at this time since segregation just ended. In the early 1970s, the temple opened other branches in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and they would eventually move its headquarters to San Francisco. 
In the fall of 1973, after critical newspaper articles by Lester Kinsolving and eight ex-Temple members talking about abuse and other suspicious activities within the group, Jones knew it was time to take People's Temple out of the U.S. And this abuse they're talking about was physical abuse and sexual abuse by the hands of Jones. The Temple quickly chose Guyana. In October 1973, the directors of the temple passed a resolution to establish an agricultural mission there. The temple chose Guyana in part because of the group's own socialist politics, which were moving further to the left. The temple believed that Guyana, an English-speaking socialist country with a predominantly indigenous population and with a government including prominent black leaders, would afford black temple members a peaceful place to live. I mean, that sounds beautiful and makes sense, but we all know it's not going to be rainbows and sunshine. And this part is so murky to me because it just sounds like such good intentions. Like if Jones was alive today, he would be a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. But again, just because you are for progression and diversity doesn't mean you can't be a narcissistic, manipulative person. Jones thought that Guyana was small, poor, and independent enough for him to easily obtain influence and official protection. He was good at presenting the Guyanese government the benefits of allowing the People's Temple to establish a settlement in the country. One of the main tactics was to speak of the advantages of their American presence near Guyana's disputed border with Venezuela. This idea seemed promising to the government, who feared a military incursion by Venezuela. In 1974, after traveling to an area of northwestern Guyana with Guyanese officials, Jones and the temple negotiated a lease of over 3,800 acres of land in the jungle, located 150 miles west of the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. The site was isolated and had soil of low fertility, even by Guyanese standards. That means they wouldn't be able to grow any of their own food there. The nearest body of water was seven miles away by muddy roads. You have to think at this point, what is his plan here? Because it sounds like he wants to create some type of utopia where this group of people are going to be able to create a civilization for themselves. So they would be making their own food, they would be building their own community. Yet you don't have soil that you can grow anything out of and you don't even have fresh water. If I knew those circumstances, I really wouldn't want to move to this place. As 500 members began the construction of Jonestown, which the area became known as, the temple encouraged more to relocate to the settlement. Honestly, if I could go back in time, I would want to sit in one of his preaches and just see how he talked to these people. Like, would I be able to just stand there and think this man is crazy? Or would I think you know what, this guy, this guy is saying something. Because it's so easy to like look back at all this and just think everyone involved is crazy. But that's a lot of people who are following him. That's not an insignificant number. He really did something to these people. Jones saw Jonestown as both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from media scrutiny. I have a feeling it's more of the latter, but whatever you say, Jones. In 1974, Guyanese officials granted the temple permission to import certain items duty-free. Later, payoffs helped safeguard shipments of firearms and drugs through Guyanese customs. 
The relatively large number of immigrants to Guyana overwhelmed the government's small but stringent immigration infrastructure. Guyanese immigration procedures were compromised to make sure that if someone wanted to leave Jonestown and the People's Temple, they wouldn't be able to. Jonestown was seen as an authentically good communist community, with Jones stating, I believe we're the purest communists there are. Jones's wife, Marceline, described Jonestown as dedicated to live for socialism, total economic and racial and social equality. We are here living communally. Jones and his wife had adopted several children of their own of all races. But Jones did not permit members to leave Jonestown without his express prior permission. That's such a scary thought that you can't leave. And I wonder if any of the members, when hearing that they weren't allowed to leave unless they told him, got really spooked and decided not to come. Because it's not only about joining a utopia, you're moving to a completely different country. But that is such a scary thought that you're not allowed to leave. Like, did that not scare anybody? See, compared to Heaven's Gate, which is another mass suicide cult, Marshall Applewhite, the leader of Heaven's Gate, allowed any members to leave at any time and even gave them a severance package basically when they left to make sure that they would be okay on their own since they lived together when they were members. Two cult leaders but very different insecurities, I guess. The temple established offices in Georgetown and conducted numerous meetings with Guyanese Prime Minister Forbes Burnham and other Guyanese officials. Burnham was a big believer in Jonestown and even said Jones was one of the finest human beings ever. Viola Burnham, the wife of the Prime Minister, was also a strong advocate of the temple. In the summer of 1977, Jones and several hundred temple members moved to Jonestown to escape building pressure from San Francisco media investigations. This seems to be the biggest reason as to why Jones decided to create Jonestown and move all of his members. It's because of the media scrutiny more so than it is creating a space for socialism and peace and communism. And it's probably because he knew that he was in the wrong and that he could get in trouble for it. I mean, the physical abuse and the sexual abuse that he was being accused of and most likely did commit, he was completely afraid and wanted to get out. African Americans made up approximately 70% of Jonestown's population. 45% of Jonestown residents were black women. Which to me makes this so much sadder because this community was trying to escape the scrutiny in America and the whiteness of America only to be led by an even wackier white man who would lead them to their death. After the mass migration, Jonestown became overcrowded. Jonestown's population was slightly under 900 at its peak in 1978. Many members of the temple believed that Guyana would be, as Jones promised, a paradise or utopia. After Jones arrived, however, Jonestown life significantly changed. Entertaining movies from Georgetown that the settlers had watched were mostly canceled in favor of Soviet propaganda shorts and documentaries on American social problems. Buildings fell into disrepair and weeds started taking over the land. School study and nighttime lectures for adults turned to Jones's discussions about revolution and enemies, with lessons focusing on Soviet alliances and Jones's crises. 
It seems like things took a turn very quickly once Jones got there. I feel like without him there, it was a utopia because among the people, they were living the way that they wanted to. But that wasn't Jones's purpose. His purpose was to control and have people under him. For the first several months, temple members worked six days a week from approximately 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. with an hour for lunch. In mid-1978, after Jones's health deteriorated and his wife began managing more of Jonestown's operations, the work week was reduced to eight hours a day for five days a week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After the day's work ended, temple members would attend several hours of activities in a pavilion, including classes in socialism. Jones compared this schedule to the North Korean system of eight hours of daily work followed by eight hours of study. Jonestown's primary means of communication with the outside world was a shortwave radio. All voice communications with San Francisco and Georgetown were transmitted using this radio, from supply orders to confidential temple business. Temple members lived in small communal houses and ate meals that consisted of nothing more than rice, beans, greens, and occasionally meat, sauce, and eggs. Despite having access to an estimated $26 million by late 1978, Jones also lived in a tiny communal house, though fewer people lived in there than in other communal houses. So most likely that $26 million came from the members themselves, whether it was their paychecks went directly to Jones or they inherited money and decided to give it to Jones. Medical problems such as severe diarrhea and high fevers struck half of the community in February 1978. Although Jonestown contained no dedicated prison and no form of capital punishment, different forms of punishment were used against members. Methods included imprisonment in a 6 by 4 by 3 foot plywood box and forcing children to spend a night at the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. For some members who attempted to escape, drugs such as Thorazine and Valium were given. Armed guides patrolled the area day and night to enforce Jonestown's rules. Children had to be given up to the care of the whole community and at times were only allowed to see their biological parents briefly at night. Jones was called father or dad by both adults and children. So I watched a documentary and I'm totally blinking on what it was called. Jones's son was actually interviewed in this documentary and his name is Stephen Jones. 
and he could tell that his father was going. He knew that his father was not mentally well. Being the son of Jones and being a kid at the time, he didn't have much say in what his father was saying or doing. Jones made frequent addresses to temple members regarding Jonestown's safety including statements that the CIA and other intelligence agencies were conspiring with capitalistic pigs to destroy the settlement and harm its inhabitants. So there's a lot of fear-mongering happening here because he is afraid to lose the control of his members. And so he's spewing a lot of hate and a lot of fear into them so that he remains their big protective father. After work, when emergencies arose, the temple sometimes conducted what Jones referred to as White Knights. During such events, Jones would sometimes give Jonestown members four options. Attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, attempt revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown and fight the purported attackers, or flee into the jungle. And to Jones and some of these members, revolutionary suicide basically means they're fed up with the way that things are going. They believe that killing themselves is a better option than living in the world that the government is presenting. On at least two occasions during White Nights, after a revolutionary suicide vote was reached, a simulated mass suicide was rehearsed. This was a great way for Jones to see who was completely loyal to him. Temple defector Deborah Layton described the event in an affidavit. And if you don't know, a defector is basically someone who has left the cult. Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison, that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came, when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real, and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. Jones's wife and others outside of the commune engaged in shortwave radio conversations with Jones, seeking to dissuade him from ordering a mass suicide. You know, much is not said, especially here, about Jones's wife. She was a supporter of her husband, but she didn't really believe in everything that Jones believed in. I really don't think she wanted to see her children die, which is why she didn't agree to the mass suicide. Also in the documentary that I watched, Stephen, Jones's son, was a big fan of his mother. And I think because his mom probably made a lot of sense and she was way more nurturing than Jones ever was. Because to Jones, he belonged to the people. He always had to present himself in a certain way to the members. His kids saw through that. In September 1977, former Temple members Tim and Grace Stowen battled in a Georgetown court to produce an order for the Temple and Jim Jones to return their five-year-old son, John. A few days later, a second order was issued for John to be taken into protective custody by authorities. This was a massive strain between Jones and defectors, recalling pushing the narrative between them and us. As someone who loves power, he freaking hated this. And he used this as a reason to 
scared the members that were still within the temple, saying how evil these defectors were. He used this as a way to show that people outside of the temple were dangerous and were only trying to hurt the members. I'm sure some parents were totally fine with just giving their child to the commune, but I think for other parents, they were a lot more skeptical of it because at the end of the day, it's their kids. They don't want to give up their kids. Jones would still incite violence on people that he was trying to punish and people were going along with it. In late 1977 and early 1978, Tim and Grace Stowen participated in meetings with other relatives of Jonestown residents at the home of Jeannie Mills, another temple defector. Together, they called themselves the Concerned Relatives. Tim Stowen engaged in letter-writing campaigns to the U.S. Secretary of State and the Guyanese government and traveled to Washington, D.C. to attempt to begin an investigation. And when the article was published, Harvey Milk, a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors who was supported by the temple, wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter defending Jones as a man of the highest character and stating that temple defectors were trying to damage Reverend Jones's reputation with apparent bold-faced lies. And if you don't know, Harvey Milk was an American politician and the first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California who was assassinated. Harvey Milk was seen as an icon, so it is really weird to hear that he had supported Jim Jones. But again, that just goes to show how charismatic Jim Jones was, that he had a lot of people on his side who were good people and I guess didn't know any better at the time. On April 11th, 1978, the concerned relatives distributed a packet of documents that they titled An Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones. They sent these documents to the People's Temple, members of the press, and members of Congress. Tim Stowen represented three members of the concerned relatives in lawsuits filed in May and June of 1978 against Jones and other temple members, seeking in excess of $56 million in damages. The temple, represented by Charles Gary, filed a suit against Stowen on July 10, 1978, seeking $150 million in damages. Jones's health significantly declined in Jonestown. In 1978, Jones was informed of a possible lung infection, but to gain sympathy and strengthen the community, he announced to his followers that he in fact had lung cancer. Jones was said to be abusing injectable Valium, Qualudes, stimulants, among other things. Jones often mentioned chronic insomnia. He would often say he went for three or four days without any rest. During meetings and public addresses, his once sharp speaking voice often sounded slurred. Words ran together or were tripped over. Jones would occasionally not finish sentences even when reading typed reports over the commune's PA system. So not only was his health deteriorating, he was taking a lot of drugs and it was really affecting his ability to give speeches and rile people up like he used to. But at this point, his members are so indoctrinated that they're still gonna listen to him. They probably know that his health is deteriorating. And like he said, he was getting the sympathy of his members by telling them that he had cancer. And he honestly, as a selfish man, made his decline everyone's decline. 
Leo Ryan, who represented California's 11th Congressional District, announced that he would visit Jonestown as it was starting to decline due to Jones's health and his failing systems. Ryan was friends with the father of Bob Houston, a temple member in California whose mutilated body was found near train tracks on October 5, 1976, three days after he had a conversation with his ex-wife about leaving the temple. His visit would send everything into chaos. On October 14, 1978, Ryan flew to Georgetown, along with about 20 other people, including reporters from NBC and representatives from the concerned relatives. So Ryan flew there to check on Jonestown to see what was really happening and to make sure that everything was okay. And these concerned relatives are basically going there to try and get their family members back or these relatives haven't heard from some of these family members, so they're trying to get into contact with them. There was one man that was a part of this concerned relatives, and I forgot if he was a temple member before or not, but his ex-wife is still an official in the People's Temple, and he hasn't seen his daughter in a very long time, and so basically he was flying down to see his daughter. Their relationship had become strained, since his daughter is also just a die-hard People's Temple member. When Ryan and his group arrived in Guyana, they were denied access to Jonestown. Jones really didn't want them entering Jonestown. However, by the morning of November 17th, they informed Jones that Ryan would likely leave for Jonestown that afternoon regardless of his willingness. Part of Ryan's party came to an airstrip at Port Kaituma, six miles from Jonestown, some hours later. Only Ryan and three other members of his group were initially accepted into Jonestown, while the rest of Ryan's group was allowed in after sunset. That night, they attended a musical reception in the settlement's main pavilion. It was later reported and verified by audio tapes recovered by investigators that Jones had run rehearsals on how to convince Ryan's delegation that everyone was happy and in good spirit. So basically, he got all the members of the People's Temple and Jonestown together and rehearsed with them on how to answer certain questions. So for example, he would ask a member, how are you liking Jonestown? And would basically coach them on what to say to make it sound convincing and that they were super happy living there. And also at this point, when some of the members heard that Leo Ryan was coming to check on Jonestown, they felt like this was their way out. Some people were done with Jonestown and were actually trying to get out. Some have already tried escaping and had been punished for it. So those who did want to escape were terrified and felt like maybe this was their one way out. Two temple members, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, made the first move for wanting to leave the People's Temple that night. In the pavilion, Gosney gave someone in Ryan's group a note reading, Dear Congressman, please help us get out of Jonestown. A child nearby witnessed Gosney's act and verbally alerted other temple members. Someone else in Ryan's group, Spire read the note as well, which caused her and the congressman to realize that something was very, very wrong. And I think these two people were questioned as to what this note was, but they got away with it at the moment, I think because Ryan and his group were there. But at this point, Ryan has been convinced that the members are actually happy being there and Jonestown, for the most part, is a nice place. Then came the day of November 18th, 
1978 that no one would ever forget. That afternoon, several people and families that were members stepped forward and asked to be escorted out of Jonestown by the Ryan delegation. Jones gave the two families, along with Gosney and Bagby, permission to leave. When Harris handed Gosney's note to Jones during an interview in the pavilion, Jones stated that the defectors were lying and wanted to destroy Jonestown. So in the documentary that I watched, I believe it was Vernon Gosney, he was absolutely trying to leave and it was really hard to confide in anyone else that he wanted to leave because if he did tell someone else and they were devout to Jones, they would have snitched on him and he would have been punished or even killed. And the really sad thing was Vernon Gosney had a child that was there with him in Jonestown. I forget the relationship with the mother, but Vernon Gosney was white and his child was half black. And so when he was thinking of escaping, he was going to leave his child behind. And at the time, he made this decision because he thought his child, a black child, would be better off in Jonestown than returning to the U.S. After a sudden violent rainstorm started, emotional scenes developed between family members. Al Simon, a Native American temple member, attempted to take two of his children to Ryan to get them back to the United States. Al's wife, Bonnie, got on the loudspeakers of the camp and denounced her own husband. Al pleaded with Bonnie to return to the US, but Bonnie rejected his suggestions. So things are really tense at this point, especially with Ryan coming along and the fact that people have stepped up and admitted that they want to leave. Jones is probably dying on the inside because he didn't want one person to leave. I mean, he made the rule that no one was allowed to leave, but because Ryan is here, he's not going to act crazy and say, no, no one can leave and hold them at gunpoint. He's going to act like everything's okay even when things weren't. While most of the Ryan delegation began to depart on a large dump truck to the Port Kaituma airstrip, Ryan and one of his members stayed behind in Jonestown to process any additional defectors. Shortly before the dump truck left, Temple loyalist Larry Layton, the brother of Deborah Layton, demanded to join the group. Some defectors voiced their suspicions about Larry Layton's motives. He was known to be a loyal temple member this whole time. Why was he now a defector? Shortly after the dump truck initially departed, temple member Don Sly grabbed Ryan while wielding a knife. While Ryan was unhurt after others wrestled Sly to the ground, Dwyer, who came with Ryan, strongly suggested that the congressman leave Jonestown while he filed a criminal complaint against Sly. Ryan did so, promising to come back. The truck departing to the airstrip had stopped after the passengers heard of the attack on Ryan and took him as a passenger before continuing its journey towards the airstrip. The entourage had originally scheduled a 19-passenger twin otter from Guyana Airways to fly them back to Georgetown. Because of the defectors departing Jonestown, the group would need an additional plane. The U.S. Embassy arranged for a second plane. When the entourage reached the airstrip between 4.30pm and 4.45pm, the planes had not appeared as scheduled. The group had to wait until the aircraft landed at approximately 5.10pm. Then the boarding process began. Larry Layton was a passenger on the Cessna, another aircraft that was going to take off. 
After the Cessna had taxied to the far end of the airstrip, he took out a handgun and started shooting at the passengers. He wounded Bagby and Gosney and tried to kill Dale Parks, who disarmed him after the gun misfired. Meanwhile, some passengers had boarded the larger second aircraft, the Twin Otter, a tractor with a trailer attached driven by members of the Temple Security Squad arrived at the airstrip and approached the plane. When the tractor got close, they opened fire with shotguns, handguns, and rifles, while at least two shooters circled the plane on foot. The first few seconds of the shooting were captured on videotape by NBC cameraman Bob Brown, who was killed along with Robinson, Harris, and Temple defector Patricia Parks in the few minutes of shooting. Ryan was killed after being shot more than 20 times. After the shootings, the Cessna fled to Georgetown. The damaged Twin Otter and the injured Ryan delegation members were left behind on the airstrip. Five people, including Ryan, were shot dead, and 11 others were injured. I mean, that is so sad to think that these people felt like they got out, they felt like they were safe, but then they were attacked and shot and killed. Jones was a very insecure man. He really didn't want anyone leaving Jonestown. He didn't want anyone speaking poorly of Jonestown. And he knew at this point, after killing the congressman, there's no turning back. Before leaving Jonestown for the airstrip, Ryan said he would issue a report that would describe Jonestown in basically good terms. Ryan stated that none of the 60 relatives he had targeted for interviews wanted to leave. The 14 defectors was only a very small portion of Jonestown's residence. Despite the report, Jones still believed he failed and all was lost. I mean, it goes without saying, dude had some serious issues. Like, out of 900 people, only 14 people wanted to leave? And you're gonna take that as a failure? Let it go, dude. I mean, any sane person has to understand that you're not going to be able to win everyone over. If only 14 people wanted to leave, you should take that as a win. I mean, again, his mind was deteriorating and there wasn't much to begin with in his mind anyway, right? Like, he was kind of cuckoo from the start. So he could not handle even one person leaving. After Ryan's departure from Jonestown towards Port Kaituma, Aides prepared a large metal tub with grape Flavor-Aid, poisoned with cyanide and other chemicals. So Flavor-Aid is basically off-brand Kool-Aid, and this is also where the term drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. The concoction was prepared with the help of Jonestown in-house doctor, Dr. Larry Schott? I'm not sure if I'm saying this guy's last name right. Larry, Dr. Larry Schacht, maybe? a Texan native and former meth addict who got sober with the help of Jones. I mean, that's really sad that he was a meth addict, but the fact that he made this concoction for everyone just goes to show that even though he sobered up, he is still a horrible doctor. A 44-minute cassette tape known as the death tape was recorded as they were preparing. When the assembly gathered, Jones talked about Ryan's delegation and defectors leaving. On the tape, Jones urged Temple members to commit revolutionary suicide. 
Temple member Christine Miller argued that the temple should alternatively attempt an airlift to the Soviet Union. Jim McElvin, a former therapist who had arrived in Jonestown only two days earlier, assisted Jones by arguing against Miller's resistance to suicide, stating, Let's make it a beautiful day. This is just wild to me that they are talking about a massive suicide and they're just saying like, listen Miller, like, let's just make it a beautiful day. Like, don't ruin it for us. Let's, like, let us just kill ourselves. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? When the shooters came back to Jonestown after Ryan's murder, Tim Carter, a Vietnam War veteran, recalled them having the thousand-yard stare of wary soldiers. After Jones confirmed that the congressman was dead, the tape goes quiet. By this point, armed guards had taken up positions surrounding the pavilion area. No one was getting out of this, but some were still able to escape. The first to take the poison were Ruletta Paul and her one-year-old infant. A syringe without a needle fitted was used to squirt poison into the infant's mouth, after which Paul squirted another syringe into her own mouth. They then gave order to kill the children first. Stanley Clayton also witnessed mothers with their babies first approach the tub containing the poison. Clayton said that Jones approached people to encourage them to drink the poison and that, after adults saw the poison begin to take effect, they showed a reluctance to die. The poison caused death within 5 minutes for children, less for babies, and an estimated 20 to 30 minutes for adults. And yeah, I'm not surprised that once you start seeing people drop dead, you don't actually really want to die. After consuming the poison, people were then escorted down a wooden walkway leading outside the pavilion. Jones said himself, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. Speak for yourself, Jim Jones, because you were the one in agony and you were the one with all the insecurities. None of these people really had to die. Rhodes described a scene of both hysteria and confusion as parents watched their children die from the poison. He also stated that most present quietly waited their own turn to die and that many of the assembled temple members walked around like they were in a trance. The crowd was surrounded by armed guards offering members the basic dilemma of death by poison or death by a guard's hand. No one was getting out. Cries and screams of children and adults were easily heard on the tape recording. As more temple members died, eventually the guards themselves were called in to die by poison. Jones was found dead lying next to his chair in the pavilion between the two other bodies, his head cushioned by a pillow. His death was caused by a gunshot wound to his left temple that was self-inflicted. And obviously because his son did an interview, he survived and so did some other of his children. During that day, Stephen Jones was on a basketball retreat in Georgetown, so he was able to escape this whole massacre. But his mother didn't, and his mother did try to protect him from this mass suicide. Plastic cups, flavor-aid packets, and syringes, some with needles and some without, littered the area where the bodies were found. In the early evening of November 18th at the temple's headquarters in Georgetown, temple member Sharon Amos received a radio communication from Jonestown, instructing the members at the headquarters to take revenge on the temple's enemies and then commit revolutionary suicide. Sharon escorted her children, Leanne, 21, Krista, 11, 
and Martin Ten into a bathroom. Wielding a kitchen knife, Sharon first killed Krista and then Martin. Then Leanne assisted Sharon in cutting her own throat, after which Leanne killed herself. And remember the man I mentioned from concerned relatives that flew down to see his estranged daughter? Leanne was his estranged daughter. They were actually having dinner together when Leanne was told that she needed to basically kill herself. And so she escorted herself away from the dinner table and then everyone killed themselves and he was left there alone. I mean, that really kills me. Like, I'm trying not to tear up right now. The fact that this man, who was also interviewed in the documentary, he went down to see his daughter that was the world to him, basically. Even though they were estranged because she wanted to be in the People's Temple, he flew down there to see her and was so excited to spend time with her, only for it to be cut short because she was devout and she killed herself. The next day, Guyana authorities showed up expecting a fight with the People's Temple and an angered Jim Jones, but it was instead eerily quiet. The authorities arrived by cars, and all of a sudden, they started to stumble, and they think that maybe these revolutionaries placed logs on the ground to trip them up. But then, a couple of soldiers look down, and they can see through the fog, and they start screaming. There were bodies everywhere. Until the September 11 attacks, the tragedy in Jonestown was the largest number of American civilian casualties in a single non-natural event. More than 900 Americans died in this mass suicide. I feel like we've all seen those videos of helicopter shots looking down onto Jonestown after the massacre and just bodies upon bodies lying next to each other. And there was actually an older woman who hid underneath her bed for more than like eight hours or overnight and came out to this scene. I mean, these were people that she knew, her loved ones that were all completely gone. I mean, you look at this imagery and you just think how this could happen. And really it happened because it was forced. Even though this is technically like a mass suicide because everyone drank the Kool-Aid themselves, some people were forced to drink it. And a lot of people did this against their own will. And that's why it's called the Jonestown Massacre. Because Jim Jones murdered these people. And that is the case of the Jonestown Massacre. Can you believe all this started because of one man? It's incredible how someone can have so much power over people. And sure, some of these people were die-hard fans of Jim Jones and the People's Temple, but a lot of these people were also just looking for a community, just looking to feel safe, and Jim Jones took advantage of them and manipulated them. And this is honestly why, I don't understand, more women should lead because less things like this would happen. I mean, I get it, corruption is corruption, and it can happen to men or women, but I mean men. And when it comes to their insecurities, they take it way too far. Like in a sense, this is also Jim Jones wanting to feel like he belongs, wanting to feel like he's loved. That's why he wants all of these people to stay and anyone leaving is a sign of failure, is a sign that he is not lovable, that he's not loved enough. It is crazy how far people will go just to feel like they can belong and that they're loved. And apparently the saying, drinking the Kool-Aid, 
is like really not liked by some of these members and I mean we can understand why because it reminds them of such a traumatic day but this whole thing is just really tragic. So now that we're here at the end, let's do some cookies and crime trivia. Starting with cookies and the cookie I made, I described it as a cookie that when you cut it, there's an image on the inside. Similar to the Pillsbury sugar cookies where there's an image on the inside, what is that type of cookie called? Is it A, a cutout cookie, B, a peekaboo cookie, or C, a slice and bake? This is really testing your listening skills. Are you ready for the answer? It's C, slice and bake. I honestly found that out for the first time when I decided to make these cookies because I didn't necessarily know what they were called, but apparently it's called a slice and bake. So add that into your cookie vocabulary if you want to sound smart. And now for the crime trivia. So this is a true or false question. The bodies of the People's Temple members were buried on site in Jonestown. True or false? Do, 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 do. Are you ready for the answer? It's false. They were not buried in Jonestown. The US tried to have the bodies buried on site, offering to foot the bill for the Guyanese government. But the Guyanese government wanted no part in the burial and families of the dead wanted their loved ones returned. So the military organized to handle taking these bodies back to the US. I mean, that's a lot of bodies and you know the people who had to handle all of these bodies were definitely traumatized, especially because there were more than 300 children who had died in the mass suicide. And that must have been a lot of flights too because I think they were only able to carry about 40 bodies per aircraft. Ugh, that's really sad, but we're gonna end it right there. That concludes the second episode of this podcast. I still don't really know how to end these, <laughs> but thank you for listening. Hopefully you learned something new from this episode. And by the way, this podcast is bi-weekly, so every other week an episode will come out. I know it's still pretty early on, so Apple Podcasts is saying it comes out weekly. It does not. This is a bi-weekly podcast. Any more frequent than that and my mind will explode from everything that I have to do. Make sure to give me a follow on TikTok and Instagram at Cookies and Crime Official and at Biggersman Cookies for all my other cookie and baking content. So thanks for listening again and I will see you guys next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.